sometimes we wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Or why did God have to do this to me? The questions of why. And I just read recently a wonderful explanation. A daughter is telling her mother how everything is going wrong with her life. She's failing algebra. Her boyfriend broke up with her and her best friend is moving away. And as her daughter describes this, the mother is baking a cake. And as she's baking a cake, she asks her daughter if she would like a snack. And her daughter replies, absolutely, mom. I love your cakes. It always makes me feel better. Here, have some cooking oil, her mother offers. Yuck, says the daughter. Well, how about a couple of raw eggs? Mom, that's gross. Or would you like some flour then? Or maybe some baking soda? Mom, those are all gross. To which the mother wisely replies, Yes, all those things seem bad all by themselves. But when they are put together in the right way, they make a wonderfully delicious cake. God works in the very same way. Many times we wonder why He would let us go through such bad and difficult times. But God knows that when He puts these things all in His order, they always work for good. We have to trust Him. And eventually, they all will make something wonderful. But it's hard in life because we often only see the ingredients. We don't see the cake. But when we know the ingredients and can visualize the cake, that is when you can begin to see the handprint of God's sovereignty in your everyday life. And so this morning, let's visualize the quote-unquote cake of sovereignty as we continue our sermon series entitled Alone But Not Alone, Learning to See the Handprints of God. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, we've been learning how to see God's handprints of protection and provision, of faithfulness and power and of care. And this morning, we turn to God's handprint of sovereignty as we continue our study in the life of Elijah. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, if you would, chapter 18, as we take a look at verses 15 to 39. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 15 to 39. It is a longer passage, and so we're going to be moving at a pretty quick pace, so please make sure you follow along. If you remember, the last time we left off, Elijah had met Obadiah, the chief of staff of the evil king Ahab. And Elijah asks Obadiah to present him before the evil king, because God's time for the drought to end was soon to come. Now, if you remember, the withholding of rain and the resulting devastating drought was a punishment from God to the people of Israel for them who have turned away from worshiping him to worshiping the false god Baal. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, 
the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Obadiah, the chief of staff, tells King Ahab that Elijah wants to talk to him, and Ahab goes to meet Elijah, the man he has been hunting for three years. Notice in these verses how clueless Ahab is as to who is causing the problem of drought. Ahab sees Elijah as the cause of all of his problems, the cause of the nation's problems. He calls him the troubler of Israel. What he doesn't realize, which Elijah makes abundantly clear in verse 18, is that it is his wicked ways, his leading the people away from the true worship of God, Yahweh, to a false god, Baal, that is the problem. And therefore, to test which God is actually great and which God is actually real, Elijah calls for all the people of Israel to gather on the Mount of Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, verse 19, also to gather at Mount Carmel. Asherah is the wife of Baal. So confident and convicted was Elijah of his God that he was willing to confront who were against him and against his God. Let me pause here and let me ask you the question. Do you have the same confidence and conviction of Elijah in what you believe about the living God to be able to stand and not be intimidated by others? If your God is the living God, it doesn't matter if it's one or two or three or 950 other people who are against you. Do you have that confidence to stand strong? Sadly, for many Christians, we wilt when one disagrees with us. What do you believe about your God? What do you believe about Him? Verse 20 to 21. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, Note these words, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. Note this. But the people answered him, not a word. Elijah addresses the people who had turned their belief from the true God to the false God. And he basically challenges them with a very logical and forthright question. If God is really God, then you follow him. But you, if you think there's another God that is more powerful and is in control, then you follow him. I'm not forcing you whom to follow. But follow one. Don't have both feet in both places. How long will you falter between two opinions? Notice the people are silent. Why? I think they were embarrassed into silence. Because their beliefs were not consistent with their actions. These were the people of God. These were the generations and the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. 
And if you were to ask many of them if they believe in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm sure many of them would have said yes. And yet how they lived was completely opposite of what they claim. Because they followed Baal and Asherah. They followed their evil king Ahab and their evil queen Jezebel. And I wonder if we are just the same. Do you believe in God? Absolutely, you would reply. Do you believe that He is all-powerful? Absolutely. Then why do you not live out your life as if He is God? You see, the question Elijah poses is really a question of God's right to rule. And we call that sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to authority, it refers to control, and therefore God's sovereignty means that God is in control. God has supreme authority. And if God has supreme authority and power over all, then we have an obligation to follow Him and obey Him. It is not only the natural response to follow God, it is the only response to know and acknowledge that God is in control. Now, I would never put pressure on you if you believe that the living Almighty God is the God who is all-powerful, then follow Him. But if you believe that there is another God, the God of work, the God of career, the God of money, other gods, Buddha, Krishna, then follow those gods. Follow those idols made of porcelain and stone. But do not stand in both places because the Bible is abundantly clear, in the New Testament, no one can serve two masters. As Elijah poses the question to the people of Israel, the question is posed to us as well. If God is God and who you say he is, then follow him. If not, then don't follow him. In verse 22 to 24, Elijah, through the prompting of God, offers a test, a test to see God's sovereignty. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call the name of, my, of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Well, finally they speak up. After Elijah proposes, well, let's put God to the test. Let's see which God is really true, alive, great, sovereign. And so they would get two bulls, one for Baal and one for Yahweh. And they would prepare it. They would prepare an altar. But they would not light the sacrifice and the wood. And whoever is the true God, they would call upon him. And that God would transcend natural law. And he would burn up a sacrifice from heaven without fire started by man. And there would be no way to manipulate this test. Because all the people had gathered to be witnesses, eyewitnesses. To which God was really sovereign. In this test of sovereignty, if you're taking notes, we will see four areas of God's dominion. And in these four areas of God's dominion or his sovereign control, 
I will correlate it with four handprints of sovereignty as evidence in our everyday life. Four areas of dominion and four handprints of God's sovereignty as evidence in our life. Let's look at verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Elijah, so kind. There's so many of you, 450 of you. You guys go first. Choose whichever bull you want. But remember, you are not to light this sacrifice on fire. That's what did they do, verse 26. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until even noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And then they leaped about the altar which they had made. 450 grown men dancing around for four hours or more, yelling, hear us, Baal, hear us. Surely the screams at the top of their lungs of 450 people, their chanting, their voices would have woken up any God that may have been sleeping. Circle that phrase in verse 26. But there was no voice. No one answered. I ask you to circle that because that's what happens when you place your trust and call out to idols and false gods. They are not alive. No one is answering. When you put yourself before a piece of wood, a piece of porcelain, a piece of metal object, a precious metals. It's a futile attempt. You can dance around it all you want. You can scream at the top of your lungs. You can chant whatever you want. No one's listening because it is not living. I know at times we admire how dedicated others in other religions are to their own gods. And it shames us in our own faithfulness to the one true God. But it doesn't matter how dedicated you are to something if you are dedicated to something that is not living. What matters is the object of faith. It's a waste of time to cry out to one who does not listen. Verse 27. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud for he is a God. Maybe he's meditating or he's busy or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and and must be awakened. Maybe Elijah just can't hold it anymore. He's watching these guys foolishly dance for four hours or more, and he eggs them on. Cry louder! Maybe Baal is sleeping. Maybe he's busy. He's on a trip somewhere. And it's interesting, everything that Elijah says is actually something that God does not do. Psalm 121, verse 4. The Bible is clear that tells us that God does not slumber nor sleep. 1 John five fourteen. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where else can I go from your spirit? Where else can I flee from your presence? God does not go on vacation. God is in our midst. He is here. And so the many manifestations of false gods, I see some gods that are always laying down. 
You know which one I'm talking about. And others that seem to be so indifferent, but not our God. So what do they do? Verse 28, 29. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blush, blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But notice again, verse 29, there was no voice. No one answered. And then a new phrase, no one paid attention. They cut themselves. Imagine that. As if they're blackmailing God. Hey, God, look, I'm cutting myself. I'm hurting myself. Please look how dedicated I am. Here's real blood, God. And their God paid no attention to them. You know, I kind of feel sorry for them. Not a lot, no sorry, but just I feel kind of sorry. These 450 men who so believed in a God that they would serve him as their prophets. In the futility of hours and hours, more than eight hours of dancing and cutting and screaming at the top of their lungs, and their God does not answer. That is why in this first part of the test of sovereignty, we see the first area of dominion that God is over. Number one, God is sovereign over all false gods. God is sovereign over all false gods. That means that the true living God is more powerful than any and all other gods. He reigns supreme over all. Yes, Satan, the great imitator of God, his powers, but his powers do not come close to God. And his powers are limited by God's sovereignty over him. And so if you are inclined to pray to other gods, idols, angels, or saints, what is the point when you can pray to the God who is sovereign over all other gods? But when you know that false gods are not real and they don't answer, then you can see that when God answers our prayers, that is his handprint of sovereignty. The first handprint of his sovereignty can be seen, number one, in answered prayers. When God answers a prayer, it shows us what he can do. It shows us that he is listening. It shows us that he is sovereign. For new fathers, you will learn something very quickly, as I've learned as I have yearly age in my fatherhood. Early on in fatherhood, whenever my children come and run up to me and they ask me, Dad, can you do us a favor? I'll answer, sure, anything you want. That phrase, anything you want, is something I've learned not to say anymore. Because when they were young, uh, they often asked simply for, can I have this toy? Can I have a pen? Now, as they've grown up, they're asking for things like computers and phones and things that are very expensive. So I've learned in the wisdom of being a father for many years. When my children ask me if I can do them a favor, what do I say? And you expert fathers know this. Tell me what you want first, and then I will see if I can do it. Now, why do we do that? 
We want to know whether it is in our capacity to be able to fulfill the request of what our child is asking. I remember many years ago, I was almost heartbroken when I went to visit uh, a very sick woman uh, in the hospital. And her little boy was there. She was dying of cancer. And I was asked by that little boy pastor, can you make my mother better from her sickness? I didn't know how to answer because that's not within my power and my ability. And yet it's wonderful that all the verses about prayer in the Bible, there is never a clause. There is never a disclaimer. When you pray, tell God first and he will see if he can do it or not if it is within his capacity to do it or not. When you read the verses on prayers, what does he say? Tell me what you want. Ask of me. If it is within my will, I will grant it to you. You see, God doesn't have to know first what we are going to ask. Because whatever the request, the sovereign God says, I can fulfill it. This is the God who answers our prayers. This is the God who hears and answers. God's sovereign handprints are seen in our answered prayers. We tell him all of our requests, all of our heart's desires. And even if we can express it, the Bible says the Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf the groanings of our souls. In that way, the heavenly father is better than our earthly fathers who are limited in our powers, but the sovereign God shows forth his sovereignty when he answers prayers. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that it was broken down. I love how Elijah has nothing to hide. He tells them, come, come near. There, there's no sleight of hands here. There's no illusion. There's no trickery involved. Come, come. And what did he do? Verse 31. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two saiths of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time, verse 33, 35. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. There was an altar there, apparently, that had come into disrepair, an altar to the living God, Yahweh. You can see how much these people had moved away from the worship of the one true God. He was in disrepair. And it was on that altar that Elijah would use to show forth the greatness of God. And he took 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he rebuilt that altar. And he prepared the sacrifice in the wood. And he took four jugs of water, large jugs of water. And he poured it over the sacrifice. Now, it doesn't take great wisdom to know that wet things don't burn. And they don't burn well. But after he completely saturates the sacrifice in the wood with water, he asked that four more water jugs 
be poured over the altar. And then four more a third time for a total of 12 large jugs of waters. In fact, there was so much water that uh, the sacrifice in the wood could no longer hold the water that it completely saturated it. It, it, it fell down the altar and it filled the trench. And based on calculations of two seis of seed, we know that more than 100 gallons of water was poured over the sacrifice. It would be in this that God would show forth his sovereignty to light something that was really completely unlightable. You see, this part of the test preparation, you see the second dominion area over which God is sovereign. Number two, God is sovereign over all impossibilities. God is sovereign over all impossibilities. If he is in control over all, which is the very definition of sovereignty, then he can do as he wishes. He is not limited by human laws. He is not limited by natural law. He can choose as he wishes to do the impossible to show forth his glory. When you see an impossibility made possible, do you in your mind affirm the sovereignty of God? Do you acknowledge his sovereignty? Or do you say, well, you know, that's chance. That was a luck. That was a coincidence. Let me share with you two things that happened within the span of 10 days, these past few days. Uh, as you know, I really love buying dirt cheap airplane tickets, and I'm really good at it. Uh, even, then, even if I have no trips to go on at night, I will simply scour the internet for really cheap tickets. But what you will find out very quickly when you buy very cheap, cheap tickets is that there are simply no refunds. Especially if you don't buy the insurance they try to sell you at the last page before you actually buy your ticket. And so if you've ever bought an internet fare or something very cheap, you know, when you print out the ticket, it's like six pages. All the important information is on page one. The rest of the five pages is often in small type print. And let me summarize what they say. Non-refundable. That's all it says. In every legal term, doesn't matter whether you're sick or you die, you can't get a refund. That's what it says, basically, if you read carefully those five pages of legalese. Well, because of some issues, my parents were not able to come back in June as planned. And I had booked my parents months ago uh, a really cheap ticket to Taiwan because of a preaching obligation my father had there. And so when they called to tell me their travel plans, they told me, could you get a refund? And I told them what I told them months ago. I said, Dad, are you sure about buying this ticket? Because you know this is a non-refundable ticket. And I bought it because they said they would push through with the trip. And now they want me to get a refund because their trip has been canceled. I told my parents, I I'm so sorry. It's impossible. It's, it's not going to happen. But, you know, Especially my dad, or you have dads like this, they're just stubborn. They won't take no for an answer. Well, Steve, you go try. It doesn't matter, as I've said, it doesn't matter how young you are, your father will always be your father, and that element of fear, you'll still do it. So I said, Dad, I'll try. And so I, I called them, and if you know the airline, which was PAL, you'll know it's an impossibility. And so I called them, and I, I sweet-talked them. I dropped all the lines. I used all the lines I had, I had learned these many years to try to get free things from the airlines uh, to no avail. I couldn't get it. They would not budge. They said, sir, this is a non-refundable ticket. 
I even dropped a line that I didn't want to use, but I said, I'm a pastor. It garnered no sympathy from them to no avail. I even said, but he's a pastor, the one traveling on this ticket. No avail. And so I said, sorry, sir. Um, uh, there would not be a refund. Well, I got off the phone. And I called my dad and I, I told him, dad, I'm sorry. You're going to have to lose that amount. Uh, and uh, they just won't budge. You will not get a refund on this non-refundable ticket. And being pastors, we both said to each other, well, let's commit it to prayer. That's kind of the catch-all line. Uh, but in my mind, I knew this wasn't going to happen. I didn't pray about it before going to bed because, again, in my mind, this is not going to happen. But he must have prayed about it overnight. Because seriously, the next morning when I woke up, when I checked my email, I got an email from Pal. And that email had stated that the flight my parents were on had a time change of eight hours from their original departure time. And because the airline had changed the time, all the customers were entitled to a full refund, even if their tickets was non-refundable. I'd hate to think that God inconvenienced an entire plane load of people because my father needed a refund. <laughs> but then again, if God wanted to do that, that's what he did. Because he is sovereign over all. I thought this was a fluke. This is one of those things. A few days later, uh, uh, it happened very similarly. You see, uh, in July, next month, I have a few speaking engagements in California. And again, because of another issue, my schedule got changed. I had booked uh, what I thought was a cheap ticket. It was about $440. Uh, expensive, but it's the summer peak travel season in America. And my only eligible refund was less than $60. That was about taxes refunded to me. Uh, it was a change on my part, so I could not uh, ethically charge to the church who had invited me, so it would have to come out of pocket. Uh, I knew the rules. Americans are sticklers to rules. Uh, and so uh, I called the agent. Money is still money. And I called uh, the airline and talked with an agent after waiting a long period of time and talked with them to try to get a refund. I, I tried again uh, to explain to them the situation. They said, sir, this is a non-refundable flight. Uh, and uh, I said, okay. And uh, the agent asked me, sir, are you sure you would like to confirm this cancellation? And right before I said yes, the line cut off. It cut off. Very frustrating when you've been on hold for a long time. Get an agent, explain the whole thing to the agent, and then you get cut off. So about an hour later, I called back again and uh, waited a long time, got a second agent, explained the whole situation again, said, sorry, sir, this is a non-refundable flight. Processed something on the computer and said, sir, would you like to confirm that you are canceling this flight and this is your refund amount? Right before I could say yes, Seriously, the line cut off again. My wife was with me. I was very frustrated. I was very angry. I said, this is ridiculous. We have some really terrible phone lines here in the Philippines. What's up with this? And very frustrated. And I told Cindy, I said, you know what? Who cares? It's just a little money. It's, it's, it, it's not worth my hassle and my time. And she said to me, Steve, remember, because she holds the money in the family. Money is still money. Please call again. Frustrated that day, I called back the next day a third time. All this hassle for a little refund. A completely non-refundable ticket. 
So I waited on a hold, got a third agent, explained the whole story again. And when she asked this time, sir, would you like to cancel your ticket? Are you sure? I said, yes. And thankfully, the phone did not cut off. And she said, sir, just a few minutes. And so she began, I could hear her type on the computer. And then she got back online. To my surprise, she said, sir, you know what? I'm going to be nice today. I'm going to refund the entire amount to you. I must have gotten a supervisor this third time, someone who had the power to refund a non-refundable flight. When I think about this situation, God cut off my conversation with the first two agents because these were not the people I needed to talk to. God wanted me to talk to the third person, the one who had the authority to do the impossible. If you cannot see God's handprint of sovereignty in something like that, then I think you cannot see God's sovereignty at work in this world. This is the God we follow. This is a God who delights and loves to do the impossible because he is sovereign over all. He is in control. And just before we get too far, a side note, please do not buy non-refundable tickets thinking that God will give you a full refund every time. You see, number two, God's sovereign handprints are seen in impossibilities made possible. God's sovereign handprints are seen in impossibilities made possible, and we call them miracles. Modern-day miracles do happen. They don't often happen in the grandiose things. They happen if you look at your lives every day. God's sovereign handprint is seen very evidently in impossibilities made possible. They are seen in miracles. Verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. When it was time the altar was fully prepared, drenched with water, Elijah prays a prayer for God to reveal himself. God, reveal yourself as the God who is over all, the God who is sovereign. And look at me, I'm just a follower. You see, in this prayer, we see that Elijah recognizes his standing and his positioning in relation to God's sovereignty. He is nothing. This great prophet Elijah, who is the power to withhold rain, is nothing apart from God who does everything. And that I have done all these things, note this, at your word. And then Elijah prays in verse 37 for something else. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. He prays that God would show himself that other people would see what he saw, that God was sovereign and in control over everything. I want you to notice the sentence structure in verse 37. That you have turned their hearts back to you. You see, the third dominion area that God is sovereign over all is that God, number three, is sovereign over all people. God is sovereign over all people. It is him alone that changes lives and it is him alone that transforms hearts. So when you pray, do you pray so that God will be revealed in the lives of others 
so that they will turn from their ways and acknowledge God? Or do you pray that they will change to your liking? When you pray that someone else will change to your liking, you will find out that that prayer is very ineffective. If you want to pray a very dangerous prayer, pray for your spouse, pray for your child, pray for your friend, that they will come to acknowledge that God is God and that He has control over their lives. That is a dangerous prayer because God loves to reveal Himself in the lives of men and women to show forth just how sovereign He is. That you... Lord, will turn their hearts back to you. Do you pray that prayer for yourself and others? Knowing that you can't change people, but God can. And God is sovereign over them. And every man, every woman whose lives you see have been transformed 180 degrees is not because somehow they got guilty or they went through a life experience but it is because god took them on a journey and god transformed their hearts and changed them pray that men and women who don't know him would recognize his rule over their life his lordship over them you see number three god's sovereign handprints are seen in transformed lives God's handprints of sovereignty are seen in transformed lives. Every man, every woman you meet who's becoming more Christ-like, when your children, whom you have been praying for, begin to turn around, that is not because you are a better parent. That is because God's sovereign hand has been put upon them. Often people say, I can't see God at work. I can't see God at work. What's God doing? He has no control over people. Look around. Look at yourself. Look how men and women are being transformed of heart and mind. That is God's outworking and evidencing of his control over people. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stone and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. In answer to Elijah's prayer, God's fire from heaven came and it consumed everything. It was so strong, it was so intense that everything was gone, evaporated, gone just like that. Not even the dust was left. Have you ever seen a fire that left what it burned to ashes and it even burned the ashes? The Bible tells us that it even burned the stone You must be really dumb if you think that normal fire can burn stone. If you want to stare at stone being burned, you'll be staring at it for hundreds of years. But the fire from heaven was so intense, so amazing, so supernatural, that instantly even the stone was obliterated. You see, the fourth area of dominion that God is sovereign over, number four, is that God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over nature. And in that truth, the corollary is that God's sovereign handprints are seen in the awesomeness of nature, both natural and supernatural. God's sovereign handprints are seen in the awesomeness of nature, both natural and supernatural. See how he controls the weather. See how he he has uniquely made us with appendages that actually work. 
Look at how, how many stray dogs and cats that you can't seem to get rid of. Because God is sovereignly taking care of them. Think about the birds that you see. They seem to be more well-fed than your own house-fed birds. How can that be? God is sovereignly taking care of them. And every time you pick a flower, and thousands of you pluck flowers, and yet there's 500 more that come after that. And it is in nature, both natural and supernatural, that you see His handprint of sovereignty. Because He promises to take care of them. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 to 34? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God says, I'm sovereign over everything you see. If I can take care of the birds and the flowers, can I not take care of you? Just study science, study biology, study chemistry, and how everything works so orderly and works like clockwork and works perfectly that is not chance. That is the sovereignty of God over nature and everything that He has made. And so when you see a beautiful sunset, when you go see a mountain vista, when you see a beautiful beach, when the heaven seems to touch the sea, yes, we declare His beauty and His great creation. As Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, but it also declares His sovereignty. That the God who is supremely over all has mastercrafted this beautiful scene. And so I'm learning every day not only to praise God for His beauty in creation, but to acknowledge His sovereignty as a reminder to me that He is in control in all that is around Him. Because if you can see the sovereignty of God at work, it will transform your life. How? Look at verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. If God is over all other gods, if God is sovereign over all, all impossibilities, is he, if he's over all people and over all nature, what is the only response? The only response is to say, Lord, I follow you. Follow God. Follow God. Follow God. The revelation and the recognition of his sovereignty elicits from us a response that says, I follow you. It is when men and women do not recognize His sovereignty and acknowledge it that they begin to veer away. It is Father's Day today and I am reminded of a father who declared before all people, before all of his friends and family, these words, and you know it well. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Those were the words of the great leader, Joshua. We find that in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But you know what? We often miss the first part of that verse. And the first part of the verse of Joshua 24, verse 15 says this. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua gave the people of Israel a choice. He says, hey, you know what? If you want to serve another God, if you want to serve the God of the Amorites or you want to serve the river gods of Canaan, you go right ahead. But for me, I choose for me and my family to follow and serve the living God. You see, that question has been posed throughout the generations. It was posed at the time of Joshua. It was posed at the time of Elijah. And it is posed to you this morning. Who will you follow? I cannot compel you to follow God. If you want to follow some other gods, go right ahead. But if you acknowledge that God is sovereign over all, then follow Him. It is as simple as that. May you make the right decision on this very special day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a reminder even to me that sometimes I minimize your sovereign work and I don't see it every day. And that's why I tend to wander in my heart and mind. Focus me and all those here this morning back to the God who is sovereign, the God who has the right to rule, the God who is in control. And may the hearts and minds of these men and women here this morning be to follow you. And yet we may not see an experience like that of Mount Carmel, but we can see every day even more powerful evidences of your sovereignty than that as you work to transform the lives of men and women, as you work to create the masterpiece of nature, as you are sovereign over all those gods who are not even living and how you love to do the impossible through your miracles. And in those things, may we all have a Mount Carmel experience every day, acknowledging your sovereignty and every day renewing in our mind that we will follow you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.